facts were left out of our history books because I too was an immigrant to Canada from Jamaica at three and a half years old. And it was out of my own suffering as a marginalized, vulnerable youngster who didn't see themselves represented in the community, in media, in the books that I read, in the professionals that were around me, and certainly not in the power structure and the privilege structure in Canadian society there. So I learned in the fire, in the cauldron, but I learned about the importance of midwives being a tool, um, a servant of activism. 20 years after my short sojourn in the United States um, and, you know, family, children, grandchildren later, I returned to Canada, recruited to come and teach midwifery at Ryerson University. And what are my students telling me that they don't see themselves represented? This is 35 years later. I come back to the same institution and I'm hearing the same song. Where are our researchers? Where are our people and all the body of knowledge that they have contributed to childbirth, to the science and the art of midwifery? Where are they? Are there any of them in Canada? And lo and behold, they were here, but because their stories weren't written down, it was assumed they didn't exist or have value. We decided to do this project to uncover the history that had been hidden. We had hidden fingers in Canadian midwifery history who had been activists who were great role models that could provide some hope and some inspiration for our students and for all midwives. Hi everyone. In today's episode, we look at Canadian Midwives of Colour, a project led by Dr. Carlene Wilson, Dr. Karen Flynn, and Dr. Cyrus Sundar Singh. The revelation of these stories and representations of midwives of colour in the historical text aim to empower racialized students, inform practice, and midwifery curriculum. The project is consequently an act of social justice or healing for the racialized midwifery community. I have three guests with me today, each amazing in their own right. Dr. Carlene Wilson is passionate about reproductive justice that informs midwifery education, practice, and global partnerships. Since 1992, Carlene's clinical work grew from the US to Canada. She then moved into midwifery education and leadership building in countries such as Jamaica, Tanzania, Zambia, Burundi, and South Sudan. As a director of Ryerson University's midwifery education program, she aims to promote resilience and sagacity in midwifery students. In 2019, Carlene launched the Canadian Midwives of Colour History Project, motivated by the desires of racialized midwifery students to know the history of racial midwives in Canada. Dr. Karen Flynn is an Associate Professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies and the Department of African American Studies at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Her research interests include migration and travel, Black Canada, health, popular culture, feminist, diasporic, and post-colonial studies. Dr. Flynn's book, Moving Beyond Borders, Black, Canadian, and Caribbean Women in the African-Canadian Diaspora, published by University of Toronto, won the Lavinia L. Doc Award from the American Association of the History of Nursing. Dr. Cyrus Sundar Singh is a Gemini Award-winning filmmaker, doctoral scholar, and musician. Cyrus is also a poet, storyteller, and changemaker. Positioning himself as an academic reactivist, Cyrus continues to expand and find cracks in conventional boundaries. 
presenting his research, films, and music at numerous national and international broadcasts, festivals, and conferences. Cyrus has written, produced, and directed in a range of genres, including documentary, reality, food, and lifestyle for various international broadcasters from Bell Media to CBC to Smithsonian Channel, right through to much music. I have, uh, in no surprise, this is the birth talks, um, more questions <laughs> than answers. Um, for the folks who are listening, are there Black midwives that existed in times of the past? There were so many. There were so many yes. who came over in the 1700s um, before slavery was abolished. They certainly came through the Middle Passage. Many who came to the Caribbean and then were transported again up the North Coast into Eastern Canada. There were many, even as um, early as the 1880s, who immigrated from the Caribbean. They were from Grenada, Barbados, St. Vincent, Jamaica, and they emigrated and they were, as was mentioned before, de-skilled. Some of them were allowed to practice as nurses, but very few of them were allowed to practice as midwives. Those who could pass for white had an easier time getting access into hospitals. There were certainly, um, when they got here, they had to re-credential all over again. They did the same British exam. They had the same British passport. However, they were prevented from having the same legal immigrant status and the same access to work. Also, there were many who were fleeing slavery. They were Canada's very first refugees. And we know the Book of Negroes is based on one of those stories, um, sort of an amalgamation of many stories. And in those communities, there was always a traditional midwife. So we know those midwives were in the Black communities. They were in the Japanese communities. So in, in, in those internment camps in British Columbia during the Second World War, where are the stories of the Japanese midwives who were in de facto segregation in those internment camps? Mm -hmm. Sometimes the midwives are walking. Sometimes they were going horseback. Sometimes they were maybe in a little bit more affluent community in Nova Scotia, where maybe somebody had a pickup truck and you would, you know, somehow communicate amongst all the members of the community. Somebody's in labor. Go call the midwife. Here, I'll let you borrow the one truck that's in our community. And they would drive across town in winter, in summer, in spring, in fall. Mm -hmm. um, there are stories. There are so many stories. Stories of sacrificing and leaving your own children to go and look after somebody in labor and then stay there for two to three days afterwards to look after the new baby and the other children and the partner who might be exhausted because they were working tremendously hard. Um, and in some cases, it did cause some burnout. It did, did cause some illness. And that's those are some of the stories that we're hearing. The sacrifice and the, um, the hard work, the difficult work in times when you were boiling water, when you didn't have electricity or an indoor plumbing system. Um, and it goes all the way up to the 1940s and 50s. And then in the 60s, when birth left the home for everybody, both white and racialized, and went into the hospitals, how those same midwives who had been a lifeline and really um, were respected and reliable, the obstetricians, the white obstetricians relied on them because those obstetricians weren't uh, either were prevented from or weren't able to go into those communities. So when those midwives brought to them someone who was having a complication that they stumbled across, uh, they were considered a lifeline, but then they couldn't come inside the hospital doors. They had to stay on the back step and maybe get a cup of tea or a sandwich. Thanks for bringing this patient 
thanks for saving this life. So it wasn't really until the 1980s, 90s that we start to see a movement of racialized women, many of whom had been midwives in their countries of origin around the world, demanding to practice as midwives alongside their white counterparts here in Canada. And um, that's, that's, the, that's the gist of the stories we're hearing. Mm -hmm. the, the, there's a theme also of talking about the de-skilling of these racialized midwives. Um, obviously not just those who came from the Caribbean, but you mentioned, uh, for example, in Japan that they were in these internment camps. And I'm wondering if that theme of de-skilling that may have been noticed in the 1700s, if you were lighter skin, that you could pass more, if that, if that uh, intentional, maybe is not the right word to use, but that de-skilling of midwives is something that you noticed in more recent decades. Uh, certainly, um, those who are internationally educated midwives who came in the 1990s, 2000s, um, they were um, given the opportunity for doing a prior learning assessment. Um, there are cultural, there are health system barriers that make midwifery um, very unique to the country where you were educated. And so learning how to be a Canadian midwife means a new kind of learning. It means understanding our policies, our culture, even our health culture here is quite different. Many of these midwives came from very paternalistic, colonialized countries in which the idea of childbirth rights, reproductive rights didn't exist because rights in general didn't exist. And so learning how to be politically savvy here in Canada, learning the new terminology for things, whether someone's fully or completely dilated, all that language they have to learn. Um, we're very fortunate that at both British Columbia UBC and Ryerson in Toronto, there are bridging programs that started in the 90s and are an alternate pathway for those who are internationally educated, not to have to learn how to be a midwife again, but need to learn how to be integrated into the Canadian healthcare system. And those have been um, the major methods by which we have diversified the Canadian midwifery workforce up until now. It's only been in the last five years that we've seen um, maybe one or two um, over a decade who is a racialized midwife being credentialed to now having, um, you know, maybe 30% of our midwifery education program classes. Um, it's a milestone, you know, to be able to graduate a class of 28 students and have maybe um, uh, 10 that are racialized is a huge milestone. Um, yeah. And for yourself, Karen, um, would you have would you have considered the de-skilling of midwives intentional in a Canadian context? So it raises questions about um, accreditation processes and you know the organizations, the healthcare organizations that develop these procedures. So one of the things that often struck me was this. So if you trained under the British system, both in the Caribbean and in Britain and Scotland, why, why, what? There's some. There's similarities there. And so I'm, I'm very, I'm skeptical of accreditation 
um, in on so many levels because I believe that it's 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 one way in which white supremacy manifests itself, right? So it looks really innocuous, innocuous, as if well, this is sort of normal, right? But the folks who create accreditation, um, accreditation rules, regulations, policies, right? It really also is about um, what I see as um, protecting someone's turf, if you will, right? So I, uh, and, and what struck, and what always strikes me is that when it comes up in discussions, people say, but we have these accreditation and take the, 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 the human element of creating this accreditation, it's taking out, it's almost like this thing that exists that was created almost like an algorithm um, without human intervention in it. And so it becomes, so I think we have to, it, it, we have to be very careful around this language of like, oh, but this is the way it is. This is the way it's been done, but ask, well, well, why? Um, so I wanted to, if I may, I wanted to read uh, uh, one of the, a quote from my book from Lily Johnson. And when she arrived in Canada in the, in, 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 um, I think she arrived in Canada 50s, 60s, and yes. her response to um, the accreditation process, but for this uh, not being able to to um, to pack practice midwifery. This is what she says. Um, she so she was trained in both Britain and and Scotland. And when she arrived in Canada in the 1960s, so this is Lily Johnson, who by the way is still alive and in a nursing home in Scarborough, Extended Rouge nursing, nursing Home, who's 99 years old. Um, this is a, an amazing trailblazer who is very mm -hmm. instrumental in including sickle cell screening in our yes. newborn screen in Ontario and then the rest of Canada, has yes. been instrumental in saving thousands of lives. She was um, trained uh, or she immigrated from Jamaica and could not work as a midwife, so worked as a public health nurse and became an advocate and an ally that way. But just yes. imagine what she could have done as a midwife. So I'll let you yes. go ahead, Karen. Yes, yes. And you know, what's fascinating about Lily, uh, so I consider myself the, you know, kind of Lily expert, um, <laughs> because I've written quite a bit about her, is that it was so fascinating that on her 99th birthday, she was still advocating, right? Like, so this was a celebration. And just to show just how, um, yeah, she's incredibly instrumental and is a trailblazer. And we know very little about her um, for the most part. So she says, um, quote, and she's referring to the physicians, right? Because um, of course there's these, this hierarchy in, in medicine in terms of physicians and nurse midwives. And she says, um, quote, they give you no responsibility. The doctor has to order everything. Although it seems to be getting better. It seems that all they doctors want is a hand, handmaiden. There's so many British trained nurses who have their midwifery training, but none of them uh, are accredited for it here, unquote. And so, yeah, so she basically said, I'm not going to be a handmaiden for this physician. And we're going to have to actually work as, uh, as Carlene pointed out, a public health nurse. Wow. What, what do you feel has been uh, a big challenge to to find the answers, to uncover the stories. Um, 
Cyrus, I think I would be appreciative if you would answer this question in large part because I appreciate hearing how you look through the cracks. It's, it's actually quite simple. I and mean, sometimes we, we complicate things. <clears throat> and, and I think a lot of times we, we, we tend to complicate um, a, a lot of stories or, 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 or other things. So here's in a simple thing. We talk about this this phrase about you know we're we're we're, we're we keep you know uh, fighting against the wall right we're trying to break the wall down trying to break the wall down. I think at a certain point I decided to stop worrying about the wall, and I was looking for a back door, right, or a crack or a window. And I think we we spend so much energy and we're told to spend so much energy, you know, fighting fighting the wall, right of breaking down the wall. So there's this thing that we grow up with and we, we imbibe and, you know, it becomes part of us, you know, to the struggle, the struggle, right? Sometimes it's as easy as a crack window over here and you just come in and that's why I talk about the cracks, right? So in a way, when you offer someone, so as a, as a director, okay? So as a, you know, and, and, and I'm going to make a distinction between a storyteller and a curator of stories, which is what I think I'm a, I'm a little bit more of. And that is to offer the opportunity to somebody to tell their story. So if you say to someone, tell me about your journey, right? Almost always, if you allow them that comfort, they're going to tell you. You know, there's something that you said earlier, and it was part of your song, Cyrus, and it really resonated with me. It was about the dance. What is the dance all about? Why do people of color tell jokes when something sad just happened? Why do we sing? Why do we dance? And I believe it is because we have turned our mourning into dancing. Mm. We have turned our mourning into dancing. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to use the films, the art gallery, the papers, the presentations that come out of this project. We're trying to use it to help all of the listeners of the story turn their mourning into dancing. Yeah. We have names of, of midwives, but they didn't leave diaries behind. So that means for us that we have to think about um, drawing on other historical evidence to tell this, to tell the story. So for me, the imagination, the historical imagination is so critical, is so important. And but also to think, um, you know, as well, to, to think about midwifery and, and, and black midwives over um, since their arrival on Canadian soil. Right. So we we know that at, at it, the, the training itself was what we would call informal training. Right. So we have to think about sort of changes over time, right? The, you know, the, what was passed down to um, midwives passing down the knowledge to other midwives until, you know, we're in this, right now in this historical moment where, you know, folks are in universities learning about midwifery, but not to necessarily value one over the other and to think about this as a continuum because oftentimes people often assume that because you weren't trained right and, and I mean it's complicated it's, it's complicated right but we want to value those what they would call in the U.S. the granny midwives who came um, to Canada who learned informally that that knowledge who used herbs right the cultural 
what we bring to what midwives brought to the birthing process, that that also needs to be valued and not necessarily get into this um, tug of war, if you will, or sort of this hierarchy that somehow those that were trained scientifically, right, in uh, are much, um, are, are more valuable or more knowledgeable than those who, um, than, 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 you know, the, those who came um to the Middle Passage, the Underground Railroad, you know, after the War of 1812, um, you know, as loyalist, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I also mm-hmm. wanted to mention something. I think that Cyrus had had said, um, and Carlene, um, there is a level of denial. I think we are also working against Canadian denial about white supremacy in the country. Right, and really working against the the narrative of the two founding peoples, that being the French and English, right? So we're really like this project is really pushing back against these larger sort of dominant discourse about about who the contributions of of Canadians and and um, you know and what they look like. Um, I think also with everything aligning with the Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, um, the the childbirth rights movement, particularly when Serena Williams went through the experience that she did. And there are many, many other Serena Williams, some who are celebrities, have very powerful and privileged positions. And the many who don't have that much power and privilege, um, we do know that there are, um, systemic racism is one of the main reasons that we see health disparities in uh, birth outcomes and in maternal mortality in particular. And so, what we realize is that we need more um, racialized uh, midwives to be able to provide concurrent concordant care, meaning that someone is like you who speaks your language, your culture um, is the one giving care to you and therefore less opportunity for missing certain cues and nuances and needs and breaking down barriers and in- engaging that person so that you can access life-saving care earlier. We see that the, this is... Um, a way of of evening the playing field and improving health outcomes and meeting the needs of communities. So if these um, racialized midwives who are coming into our our workforce believe that they need to be able to understand the history and the context better to be able to provide care to their communities better. Uh, We understand from some of the research now coming out of um, population health that context is important. History is not, um, you know, is not something that is negotiable anymore. Um, in fact, that context and history is part of giving individualized health care. It's a necessary element. We need to have that knowledge to be able to give adequate health care. That's what Dr. Jeannie um, Shoveler, who is now the um, CIHR Population Health Chair, is saying that context, history, is relevant if we're gonna be able to give care in ethnically diverse industrialized countries. And in fact, globally, if we're gonna give care. Right. And so I think what we're trying to attempt to do here, if I may use that, use that idea, is that we're trying to kind of bust our way and say, no, no, we're going to uh, make sure you hear these stories because this is not something new. Uh, residential schools aren't something new. Africville is not something new. The history of, uh, of Blackness in, 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 on the continent of, of North America isn't new. But it is time that you listened, heard, and acknowledged 
and recognize, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that is part of, I think that is part of where, even though we don't articulate it as such, I think that's part of what is driving us to, to, to do this work. And, and perhaps Karen, you can, you can maybe continue that thought. Yes, so the, the work that we're doing has implications um, in terms of which, which both Cyrus and Carlene point to too. So for me, it's, you know, it's part recovery, but it's also about the future as well, right? The future of, of midwifery. It's about, um, it's knowing the history, but the history has to have, has to be transformative. Where, where is the project going? Like, what are the next steps? There are a few um, more interviews that we want to have in Ontario. We got funding from SHRC and from the Association of Ontario Midwives for a pilot and to really show the way going forward, the partnerships and the allies and stakeholders that could continue this relationship for decades to come. So our two-year funding is going to be ending in 2020. Uh, 2022 spring, um, at which time we will have a pilot of between 10 and 20 interviews. We will have launched our art gallery and our film. Um, you can already see them on our website at um, ryerson.ca slash color dash of dash birth. Um, or if you just, you know, Google color of birth, you'll see it. This is the first of many stages. Our first stage was to start in the Black community, but we plan on going to other racialized communities as well. So Jap East Asian, Japanese, Chinese, South Asian, um, many of the, um, the Sikh communities that were in British Columbia. And uh, we're looking for people to share stories or leads with us uh, so that this um, will be a living project that will go on for decades to come, that will continue to partner with folks like Heritage Canada. Uh, we've all already partnered with the Africville Museum and um, you know the Amherst Museum here in Ontario. We've never really counted. We've never listened to the stories. We've never counted. And do we not count because those people don't count, because they don't matter? We would argue that these groups, these communities matter because they matter, because you care, you must understand them. You can't give care if you don't understand a population. If you don't know where they're coming from, the context that they're currently living in, there is ancestral, repetitive, reiterative trauma going on at the genetic, at the cellular, at the epigenetic levels in these communities. They hold, these bodies hold violence, exclusion to the point where it's changing their blood pressure. It's changing how they um, manage with COVID, how they um, present in terms of cardiovascular disease and the kind of complications that they might, they might know of. It also is learned ways of behaving that speak of someone who's trying to survive. Someone who's trying to survive needs an ally. They may not present with the same kind of assertiveness. They may be literally afraid of being rejected, hurt, damaged, or harmed. And that's what obstetrical violence does. I've seen it practiced over the years. It is still going on today. Yes, it's not just in the United States, it's in Canada. And if we're going to be an ally, whether the midwife is a white ally, whether the midwife is a racialized midwife, 
we need to be able to understand these populations, where they've come from, where their families are coming from. I have clients who have told me, not just in the United States, where the Black Lives Matter issue has become riotous, has become you know, uh, a public demonstration, but I've heard people tell me that I'm a little bit afraid about getting into my vehicle and driving to the birth center or driving to the hospital because it might be my black teenage son who's driving. And what if he's profiled and stopped on the way and my baby dies because we get stopped, arrested or killed in the vehicle on the way to the facility? I'd rather stay at home and birth at home. I have clients telling me this. So this fear is real. It's translated into not accessing healthcare. We say we've made this expensive, state-of-the-art healthcare available. We have one of the most amazing healthcare systems. However, having it available doesn't really mean that everyone has equal access. And so what can we do to decrease some of those barriers? That's something all midwives, all healthcare providers, all advocates for for pregnant folk, for families need to think about, because this is the foundation of our society. We will have no future generations if we don't take care of families who are birthing. Think you have a birth conversation that matters and want to share? We are always looking for stories. So contact us at thebirthtalks.com or on Facebook. If you have comments on this episode, find us on Twitter or Facebook at The Birth Talks or use the hashtag TheBirthTalks. I'm your host, Trish Langley-Frempong. Until next time.